0: as we get to Revelation chapter 7, uh, it's kind of a parenthesis. We have already, in Revelation chapter 6, the last couple of weeks, we have unlocked and opened six seals thus far, and it's just a rapid fire, it seems like, of judgment that is coming to this earth. And one thing, just quickly, as you study Revelation, it's not that events are not in chronological order, but it's, it's very easy to get confused as you study Revelation, Um, I I just want to read some of the things that I have written down. It's easy to read Revelation and almost get confused by the order. The arrangement of this book seems cyclical and not, not chronological. One writer said, "...the unity of John's book is not chronological but artistic, like that of a musical theme with variations, and each variation adding something new to the significance of the whole composition." Just imagine the progression of a symphony. It's repeating and reinforcing, but building and building and building towards a climax. And really, that's what we're seeing here. It's all building towards a climax. So all of these visions, these themes, are going to build one on top of another as we progress. In chapter 6 through 19, I mean, there's so much meat within this, and we're not trying to dive so deep that confuses you. We're trying to help you understand, but at the same time, if you're a Christian, give you hope because... This book is meant to be read with hope, and understanding that, I think as Eaton said, we're not going to be here. Praise God, we're not going to be here, but uh, there's still a job to do, and we're even going to see that tonight in Revelation chapter 7, That, and there is still a job to do, and and God desires and Jesus desires that the whole world be saved, And, and as we've been talking about in our Acts series, we have a mission. We have a commission if we are a child of God, if we have been born again, if we have ask Jesus to save us. We have a mission, a commission to go out into the world, to preach, to proclaim the gospel, the good news to a lost and dying world. So it's very important that we do proclaim the good news. And And I think even Mary made mention of it that, you know, it's been very convicting. And honestly, it's been super convicting to me as I've been studying and reading. And, and this has been going on for months in the past several years in my life. But it's brought me hope that there is still work to do. You know, 2020, you can say whatever you want about the year but 2020 is just a reminder that God's work is not finished yes with all the turmoil with all the chaos and you know churches having to go online and do digital services you know it, it's it's frustrating but even now the gospel has gone forward more than it has in other years because more people are online because they've kind of been forced to and I'm thankful for that now it's it's important to meet in person but as we see in Revelation five and even Revelation chapter seven, every kindred, every tongue, every nation will be in heaven. And there, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but there, there's something like over three or four thousand people groups on this earth that are still unreached. So, what does that tell me? That there is still a job to do, that there is still work to be done. And I and I and I said it on Sunday. You know, it, it kind of blew me away in my study. I, I know I've seen this before. I know I've read it before. When, when Jesus told the early church, when he told his disciples to go into the world, he said, you know, to Jerusalem, to Judea, uh, really the area of Judea, and then Samaria and the uttermost, you know, he was telling them specific locations. You know, we can make the application for us today that, okay, that's that's our city, that's our town, that's that's our state, that's our country, that's everywhere else, which, which is true. You have to read the Bible and understand the the micro the 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 text itself as well as the macro the 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 complete uh, whole of the bible and sometimes it's very easy for us to skip the cultural connotation and we just give the application and sometimes people and preachers are very good at the application and skip the cultural context or some preachers go too deep in the cultural context that you have no idea what they're talking about so we're trying to find a balance but you know the lord kind of reminded me that in the cultural setting in the cultural context when he was calling them to go out of Jerusalem, out of their home or the area that they were familiar with. He was calling them to go back to Judea, to the countryside. But he was calling them to Samaria, and Jews hated or Samaritans. So he's calling them to go to a place they didn't like, to reach people they didn't want to reach. and And the message just became that much clearer, more impactful for me, that, man, that's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to go to reach people that we don't want to reach and go to places that we don't want to go. And the question I left you all with on Sunday after first church or second church or EQ time, whatever you want to call it, is who is your Samaria? Who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that you know you need to reach? And it may be, it may very well be the neighbor across the street. It may be the person that comes to church that you're like, why are they in our church? Why do they step foot in in my church? They're not welcome here. You know, we have the same attitude sometimes, and God has called us to to eliminate, and that's the the thing, that's what the gospel does. The gospel removes prejudices, and I know I'm going back to Acts, but the gospel removes prejudices, and even as we study that every nation, every every kindred, every tongue will be gathered around the throne in heaven, it should bring you hope. It should bring you hope that, man, we're all, not all of us, but there is going to be a multitude in heaven. But we have a job to do, church. We have a commission. I, I want to encourage you as we jump in tonight to, to understand that, to understand your commission. And, and I know, you know, having to go online, having to have church digitally is not, it's not the best thing. I get that. It's not the best thing for me just talking to a wall and, you know, talking to the two people that are here. But we still have a job to do. And we still have a mission. And it's very important that we do our job that we are fervent, that we are faithful to the job that Christ has called us to do. And, and I want to jump back into it tonight, but at the end of Revelation chapter six, as we looked at, in the first part of Revelation chapter six, we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then we opened the, the fifth seal and the sixth seal, and we talked about the wrath of the Lamb last week. What we see in Verse number 16, go back there and just for reference sake, it says, and said to the mountains, those that were, that were still alive here during the tribulation, again, the church has been raptured out. The church has been taken away. There's no more salt, no more light here on this earth at that time. But listen, it says, and said to the mountains and to the rocks, uh, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, you don't typically think of a Lamb as being wrathful. You think of them as being, you know, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Meek and you know, uh, you know, uh, compassionate. You know, fuzzy and and warm. But the picture here is that they understand who's bringing this judgment. And then verse 17, this is where I want to focus on as we get to chapter seven. For the great day of wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? And really the question is this, who can stand in the day of the Lamb's wrath? Who can stand in the day of the Lamb's wrath? And you think about that. Will there be people that get saved during the tribulation? If the church is gone, if the witness is gone from this earth, How will people hear? How will will they know the truth? Will people be saved? Well, let me just remind you something quickly, that there is no promise too hard for God to keep. There's no promise too hard for God to keep. Uh, There's something like, and I might be overestimating here, but there's something like 30,000 promises in God's word. And God will keep every single one. And especially when he talks about Every tribe, every nation, every kindred, we've already looked at that in like Revelation 4 or 5. He means that. And this, there's still a job to do on, on earth now, but especially if he comes back today or tomorrow and still there's many people that are still unreached, they're going to have a chance to be reached during the tribulation. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 7. Who can stand in the day of the wrath when, when the church is gone? Here's the answer to that question. Only those with the seal of the living God. So let's look at verse number one of chapter seven. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So if you wanna take notes, go ahead and pop this up there, guys. The first thing we see is this. We are sealed and protected by the Lamb. I'm going to read the rest of the verses here in just a minute, but we are sealed and protected by the lamb. And I'm, I am thankful for that. And that's what we see in this passage. After seeing all this chaos break loose in chapter six, it appears that no one will survive, much less stand against the wrath of God. But then a wonderful truth emerges. You go back to Habakkuk chapter three, verse two, we're not going to forsake a time, but Habakkuk chapter three, verse two, uh, it talks about that really. In wrath, we should remember mercy, remember the mercy that we have of God and of Jesus Christ. In verse number one, it says, and after all of these things, so what follows is the preparation for the seventh seal, which is really the weightiest of all. And John sees five angels, and he sees four angels holding back the the four corners of this earth. Now, for some people, clearly this is referencing a flat earth, but they are wrong. This is not flat earth theory, and I'm not going on to that. Uh, But what this is talking about, it's speaking of direction, like four points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. So it's not saying the earth is flat. So all of those flat earthers out there, I'm sorry I just debunked that. That's not what the Bible is saying here, okay? But here's what we see. Here's what we see. Get this down. In wrath, the Lord shows mercy. In wrath, the Lord shows mercy. Now, winds in the Bible speak of danger and disaster. Remember that while there was a rainbow around the throne, the raptured saints beneath them were thunder and lightning. A storm was about to come and God was about to unleash these tornadic winds of judgment. But these angels are holding back the four winds of the earth. And look at verse number two. And I saw another angel ascending from the east. Now this is important. The angel arises from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and to the sea, saying, hurt not the earth. So he's telling them, hey, it's not yet time. I know, you're, I know judgment is coming and, and the winds of destruction are about to, to take place, but it's not yet time. And he's holding the seal of the living God uh, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, this is very important. So this angel is a messenger, not of destruction, but of mercy and of grace, and he's carrying with him the seal of the living God. The seal is important. It's a sign. It's a promise of divine uh, divine possession and protection. Uh, Gordon Fee, in his commentary, he says this, the seal in this case is the stamp of divine ownership and authenticity. Thus, it functions as a divine commitment that God's own people will not experience the divine wrath when it's poured out. At the same time, this marking of the foreheads of God's servants stands in deliberate contrast to the later marking of the foreheads of the followers of the beast out of the earth. And earth in Revelation chapter thirteen. So God is stamping His people as a sign of ownership and protection. That's that's the awesome thing that we see here, verse number four. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. So He is sealing His own, protecting His own, and they were sealed. And 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So this is very important. The seal of the living God is now applied to the 144,000 witnesses. Now, who are the 144,000 witnesses? Oh, man, we can spend the rest of tonight talking about that. Brother Mike wants to come up and talk about his perception of this, uh, but I'm going to hold him back like the angels are holding back. Um, I'm going to briefly reference that uh, from one of my commentaries, of who I believe the 144,000 witnesses are. But again, I don't want to go too deep because we have so much to cover. Um, I believe that they are; these are of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. One, because the Bible says it in the next verses to come. Um, and I want to reference that because when you see that, some, some would never know this, but some would be like, well, the names of these 12 tribes are different than other places in scripture. Uh, they're a different order but I still believe that these 144,000 are witnesses of Jesus Christ. So what they are doing, they are going and taking out the gospel to a world that needs to hear the gospel, to those that have never heard. And really, uh, this is uh, consistent with supportive views of like the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 and, and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and Jeremiah and, and all of the promises Now, some people would ask and object, well, what about the peculiarities in this list, specifically Judah appearing first or Levi being included in the absence of Dan and Ephraim? Let me quickly read and reference uh, in one of my commentaries that I, I, I pretty much fully agree with. He said, there are 19 different arrangements of the names of the tribes in the Old Testament. And this list is different from all of them. Judah is listed first because Messiah, our Lord Jesus, comes from the tribe of Judah. Levi, though not allowed a portion of the land, and we talked about that in our Joshua series a few years back, is rightly involved in this sealing for security and service. Ephraim is replaced by Joseph, possibly because of the history they had with idolatry and its allying with the enemies of Judah. Yet the inclusion of Joseph allows for the inclusion of Ephraim, but without the mention of his name. And I know I'm kind of quickly going through this and you know, I can I can talk more in depth maybe at another time, but uh, another one quickly, Dan. Dan is omitted and replaced by Levi. Many believe it's because of his practice or the, the tribe's practices of gross idolatry. Further, Irenaeus, who was a second century church father, he noted the pre-Christian Jewish tradition that Antichrist, now this is the second century Jew, he said he believed that Uh, the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. I don't know that. I can't say that with surety, but this is uh, one of the early church fathers in the second century. That's what he believed. And Hippolytus wrote, as the Christ was born from the tribe of Judah, so will the Antichrist be born from the tribe of Dan. Now, this isn't Bible. This is someone's interpretation. Genesis 49, 17 talks about how Dan Shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horses' heels, so that the riders fall backwards. So again, we don't we don't know if that's true. We don't know if it's not. But again, the 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 main point is that God is going to seal these individuals as witnesses to go out and to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. Now, quickly, quickly, quick, quickly, a Jew today from what I've read and what I've studied and what I understand, and I I could be wrong, but a Jew today can't prove the tribe from which they descended. The uh, genealogical records have all been destroyed. Even the fact that 10 of the tribes were taken by the Assyrians and lost, the the thing is with this, the the point I'm making is this. Even though there's not any records today that we can trace back heritage of who are these and which tribe they're from, they're not lost to God. God knows who they are. God has always known who his people are. He knows his people and their whereabouts. And 144,000, I believe, are Jewish evangelists who proclaim the gospel during the tribulation. Revelation 14, again, I'm getting in my head of myself, but Revelation 14 reveals three important things about them. If you want to write this down, it's not in your notes, but you can. First of all, they are virgins. The Bible says in Revelation 14, they've never been married. They make a special vow or or uh, commitment to their lives uh, to the end to never deny Jesus Christ. A second thing, they are called the servants of our God. They are completely committed followers of Christ. They have a great responsibility. And a third thing about them is they are redeemed from among men. They are first to be saved during the tribulation. And a truth, and I think we have this, guys. In the Lamb, what we see is that we have his stamp of approval. In the Lamb, we have His stamp of approval, and that's the first thing that we see in these verses as we as we read them. Uh, again, in verse number three, uh, the angel's saying, "Hey, you're not allowed to hurt the earth until." These servants have this stamp on their forehead. And then he goes through of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Aser. And that's why I believe it's literally talking about 12 tribes of Israel and not just church, as some might reference, or you know, some you know, Jehovah's Witnesses think that the 144,000 is gonna come out of them. But to me, that's astounding to think about because there's over 7 million uh, Jehovah's Witnesses today So that's like less than a 2% chance of being part of the 144,000. Why would you want to be involved in a religion with less than 2% chance of being marked and included, you know, in in heaven, whatever, beside the point. Uh, Verse number seven, of the tribe of Simeon were 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. So it goes through all of them. In verse number nine, let's continue on. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude... So the first point that we saw tonight is this, we are sealed and protected by the lamb, or there are, there will be those that will be sealed and protected by the lamb. And then second thing, verses nine through 17, is this, we are saved and made pure by the lamb. We are saved and made pure by the lamb. And here's what stands out in these verses to me. The very first thing in verses nine through 10, salvation will be global. Salvation will be global. You see, there is a great diversity in numbers of how many people groups are in the world. Again, some estimate anywhere between ten to 24,000, but I think the common theme and common belief is between eleven to 14,000 people groups right now on the earth. And many, th- <coughs> excuse me, hang on, too excited. Many theologians believe that there are upwards to 4,000 unreached people groups, that's more than 3.2 billion people. But remember, God's promises that every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every ethnic will be gathered around the throne. And look, verse number nine. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multi- multitude, which no man can number. You know, we've been in Acts for, I don't know, two, three months now. And we've seen some great harvest of, of souls. We saw Pentecost, where 3,000 were saved. We saw at. Uh, uh, I think in John chapter, or Acts chapter four, I believe it was, where, where Peter and John were preaching and another 5,000 men were added. You know, just amazing. But now, as it says, a great multitude has been harvested, which no man can number of all nation and kindreds and all people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms on their head and cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne. And unto the Lamb. And really, this is referencing what's going to take place during this tribulation as the 144,000 are sent out. 12,000 from each of these tribes are sent out as evangelists. That's their sole mission to be sent out to go into the world. You know, in chapter 7, what we're witnessing is the world's greatest revival meeting. You know, I like what uh, uh, Adrian Rogers says. He says, do you think that this, the greatest revival meeting was Pentecost? Did did you think perhaps it was some Billy Graham crusade? The world's greatest ingathering of souls, the greatest harvest time is going to come during the tribulation. There will be a great multitude of people that will be saved, so many that you couldn't even count all of them. No man could number them all. All of this is gonna be done by God's mighty miracle working power and what an amazing impact but here's the thing i can't help but think of our impact or the impact that we need to have you know those 144,000 had a job to do but so do we you know as i was thinking about it this week and even studying it's it'd be very easy to think well you know there's going to be a great multitude saved at the end time so i don't really need to do anything well that's there's nothing farther from the truth You see, we have been commissioned, just like these 144,000 will be commissioned as well to go out to every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. The same is true for us. And there might be people really literally on our account that we have not witnessed to, that we have not shared the gospel with, that might go to a place the Bible calls hell because we never witnessed to them. There's no chance that they're going to make it to the end times and, and to the great tribulation and be one of those great multitude of people so we have a job to do on this earth right now and this just reminds me of the the, the overwhelming job that god has given us but it gives me hope knowing that it, it, it's gonna happen if we are active and we are faithful of doing what god has called us to do he is faithful in in answering those requests in and, and fulfilling his mission but notice the celebration John describes the crowds as wearing white robes. White is symbolic of purity and righteousness. They're seen waving palm branches. It's another picture of celebration. Remember when when Jesus rode into uh, Jerusalem on the donkey on that Palm Sunday, they laid palm branches down and were waving palm branches. And what they're doing, as we see in these verses, they are shouting out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, as I was thinking about that this week, you know, this verse right here disproves the theory that only Baptists will be in heaven. Do you know why? Because there are people shouting and worshiping and Baptists have a hard time of raising their hand or, hey man, preacher, you know, whatever. You know, we're like, oh yeah, 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 I guess that's good. So I'm trying to be funny a little bit tonight, but um, you know, I I think I mentioned it on Sunday that there are some that that Baptists bride or that only Baptists are gonna be in heaven. Well, they're pretty foolish. There's gonna be... Uh, people of every religion, as long as you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, that's the most important thing. But the more I study God's Word, the more I study Revelation, especially. And this is the third worship service that we see. And we've seen, you know, in chapter four and five, just the worship around the throne. Man, oh, we're gonna be worshiping in heaven. Some people are like, "Well, I'll wait until I get to heaven." Then I'll start worshiping. You should be worshiping right now, praising God. I mean, go ahead, right now in your home, let out a cheer, let out a man, praise God, Hallelujah, whatever. Just you shout go ahead do it all right i kind of hear it i heard it rumbling in here we'll do that here in church praise god worship god i mean you know we come together to worship him Man, be excited about your salvation you know if you're not excited about your salvation then are you even saved well yeah i'm saved but i'm just grumpy well why are you grumpy you should be joyful You should be joyful. Well, my candidate didn't get elected. Who cares? God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. Worship that. Be excited for that. Don't take heart or don't don't take hope in what's happening on this earth. Take hope in what's happening in heaven and what will happen in heaven. And here's a practical takeaway we need to do a better job of proclaiming the gospel with urgency. Write that down if you are taking notes tonight. We need to do a better job of proclaiming the gospel with urgency, having an urgency in our proclamation of the gospel, not like, well, I guess if I get to it in a couple weeks, I'll get to it. Well, pastor, you know what? It's not really for me. Um, It's not really my thing. It's not really, you know what? I don't really like to talk to people. (laughs) Look, God didn't save us to just do whatever we want. He saved us for his purpose, for his glory, to magnify him, to, to make his name known through all the nations of the earth. So what are we doing? You know, I I preach with with passion because I I want to encourage you to want to to love Jesus, to love the Jesus that I love, to have a, a close and personal relationship with God. Look, I've grown so much in my relationship with the Lord over the past many years. You know, I think of, it's coming up on five years, me being here as a pastor, you know, we moved on Black Friday five years ago, so it's almost five years to the date. And, and I, I think about even five years ago when I came, I was really excited to, to get here. And then I got here, and I was like, oh, man, what a mess I've inherited. Um, but I was excited, and I still am, but my, my love for Christ has grown so much more in these five years. And I hope and pray your love for Christ has grown so much more as well. Those that have been here and those that have joined us, But if your love for Christ has grown, then you should have a desire to to serve Him, to live for Him, to be obedient to Him. So that practical takeaway that we can take from just this passage thus far is proclaim the gospel with urgency. Christian brothers and sisters, you and I know that the judgment of God is coming. And and as we get this parenthetical chapter, this parentheses between the sixth and seventh seal, and we, we see several of these kind of throughout the book of Revelation, It's really just a reminder as we go back to heaven and see all those that are worshiping around the throne. You know, God's judgment is coming and it's cosmic and it's universal as we had talked about last week. It's terrifying. It's eternal. So shouldn't we do a better job of warning people around us? Warning them of the coming wrath, but also telling them of Christ's mercy? Let's not sit silently by... Allowing people to drift into eternal hell. God sent us out. He commissioned his church. And we're called to take the gospel to places we don't want to go and reach people we don't want to reach. He's called us into Samaria. I'm not asking you to go to the literal Samaria. But he's called us to go into a place and places, Judea as well, you know, in the countryside and in, in, in the surrounding areas of where you live. He's called us to reach people we don't want to reach and go to places we don't want to go because they need the gospel. Who's going to tell them if we don't? And then verse number 11 and 12, we continue on. Still got a lot to do in just a couple minutes left. But what we see is a glorious celebration, a glorious celebration. Look at verse number 11. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto God forever and ever, amen. You know, this is that worship service that's breaking out in heaven. You know, just like the saints in verse number 10, they speak not of what God has done, but who God is. They are affirming what the saints have already said, and adding their own words, blessing, you know, that good word of praise, glory, <clears throat> that honor derived from one's character and reputation, wisdom, divine knowledge, and perspective on all things, that thanksgiving, just giving thanks and honor, esteem, power, and strength about God's omnipotence and God's mighty acts and salvation. But notice they cry out to God at the very end, where's that? Um, very end of verse number 12. And honor and power be unto God for ever and ever. You see, this word of worship is not temporary, it's eternal. So we see this glorious celebration, but then another thing we see is this, the lamb makes clean. Verse 13 and 14, the lamb makes clean. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? So, you know, the one of the elders is asking John, you know, this question. John, I I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. So it's kind of like a ping pong back and forth. Hey, John, who are these people that are all worshiping, that are all gathered around the throne? And John's like, well, um... Why don't you answer it? Because I think you have more knowledge. I think we do that sometimes. Hey, Pastor, why don't you answer this question on, about the Bible? Because I'm not really sure about this. Uh, so that's kind of what's going on here. The ain't or the the uh, the elder is asking John, "Hey, who are all these people?" And really, it's it's given for us and for our understanding. And and John said, "Sir, thou knowest." And he said to me, "Okay, all right, all right, I'll go ahead and answer." These are they which came out of the great tribulation. Now, I got ahead of myself in in saying who they were, but these are the ones that came out of the great tribulation that were saved and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So the lamb has made them clean. All the things that they had to endure and go through, the lamb has washed them, has made them clean. Verse number 14. uh, No, I just read that verse, sorry. So again, What this is doing, it's it's giving validation that people will be saved during the great tribulation. This is referencing the final series of woes, which will precede the end. And God wants everyone to know that even amidst judgment, he offers abundant mercy and opportunity to get saved. Even in the midst of chaos and turmoil, the lamb still has the power to make clean. Let's go to the final three verses tonight. Verses 15 through 17. Here's what we see. The lamb gives assurance and protection. The lamb gives assurance and protection. Let me read these verses. Therefore, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Can't wait for that day. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The lamb gives assurance and protection. God assures them that there will be no more suffering. You know, there's suffering on this earth, even right now. But one day, there is going to be no more suffering. And these closing verses give us a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like for the Christian. During the Great Tribulation, people who come to Christ will not be able to buy or sell in the open market. Revelation 13 talks about that. They will be marked and hunted and attacked. They'll probably be left out in the elements to die if they are not beheaded. There will be nowhere on earth for them to turn to escape this horrible end. They'll not be spared, except the 144,000 for a time and two witnesses of chapter 11. But there will be a mourning and tears as families see their loved ones killed for their faith. But look at God's promises in this section. Verse 15, God himself will shelter them. Their lack will be made up, verse 16. The elements will no longer harm them, verse 16. In verse 17, they'll have a guide, a provider, and a healer of their pain. And here, what we see is the lamb allows them to serve in priestly and worshipful service day and night in his temple. You know, in chapter 5, we saw a lamb who was also a lion. Now we see a lamb who was also a shepherd. This lamb is at the center of the throne and will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. The great paradox here is that tribulation will not only be a period of great divine judgment, the greatest the world has ever known and seen. But it's also going to be a time of the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. I'm going to give you the the final truth and then I want to read something in one of my commentaries. And I think it's just a a quick reminder. So just stay with me just a couple more minutes if you don't mind. This, This key core truth that we see in closing is this. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who will also shepherd the nations and receive worship from all the peoples of the earth. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who will also shepherd the nations and receive worship from all the peoples of the earth. You know, it's an amazing thing that, that we have seen thus far. But I want to read something I, I came across in, in many of the books that I've done and, and read in this series thus far And the author said, he came across an article entitled The Room. And I want you to read, I want to read about it and just share some things with you. He said, it was a dream that the author had. And he said, in that place between wakefulness and dreams, I found myself in the room. There was no distinguishing features save for the wall, the one wall covered with small index card files. They were like the ones in libraries that listed titles by author and subject in alphabetical order. But these files, which stretched from floor to ceiling and seemingly endlessly in either direction, had very different headings. As I drew near the wall of files, the first to catch my attention was one that read, Girls I Have Liked. I opened it and began flipping through the cards. I quickly shut it, shocked to realize that I recognized the names written on each one. And then without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room and its small files was a crude catalog system of my life. Here were written the thoughts and actions of every moment, big and small, and detail my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity coupled with horror stirred within me, and I began randomly opening files and exploring their content. Some brought joy and sweet memories, others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The title ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. One title said, books I have read, lies I have told, Comforts or comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. Some were almost hilarious in their exactness. Things I've yelled at my brother, others I couldn't laugh at. Things I have done in my anger, things I have muttered under my breath to my parents. I never ceased to be surprised by the contents within this room. Often there were many more cards than I expected, sometimes fewer than I hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life that I had lived. Could it be possible that I had the time in my brief life to write each of these thousand or even millions of cards? But each card confirmed the truth. Each was written in my own handwriting. Each signed with my own signature. When I pulled out the file marked songs I have listened to, I realized the files grew to contain their contents. The cards were packed tightly, and yet after two or three yards, I hadn't even found the end of the file, and I shut it, shamed. Not so much by the quality of music, but more by the vast amount of time I knew that file represented When I came to the file marked Lustful Thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only by an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card, and I shuddered at its content. I felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded, and almost an animal rage broke out in me. One thought dominated my mind no one could ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. In an insane frenzy, I yanked out the files and the cards. Its size didn't matter. I had to empty it and burn the cards. But as I took each one and began pounding it on the floor, I couldn't dislodge a single card. I became desperate and pulled out a card only to find it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and utterly helpless, I returned the file to its slot, leaning my forehead against the wall, I let out a long, self-pitying sigh, and then I saw the title card bore people I have shared the gospel with. The handle was brighter than those around it, newer, almost unused. I pulled on the handle, and just a small box, not more than three inches, fell into my hands. I could count the cards it contained on one hand. And then tears came. I began to weep. Sobbed so deep that the hurt started in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out in shame from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. But then I pushed back tears and I saw him. No, please not him. Anyone but Jesus I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. And in the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw a sorrow deeper than my own. He seemed to intuitively go to the worst boxes first. Well, how did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with pity in his eyes. But this was a pity that didn't anger me. I dropped my head, covered my face with my hands, and began to cry again. He walked over and put his arm around me. He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just cried with me. Then he got up, walked back to the wall of files. Starting at the one end of the room, he took out a file one by one, began to sign his name over mine on each card. No! I shouted, rushing to him. All I could find to say was no! No! As I tried to pull the card from him, his, his name shouldn't be on these cards. But there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written with his blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a gentle smile and began to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly. But the next instant, it seemed, I heard him closed the last file, and walked back to my side. He placed, in his hand on my, he placed his hand on my shoulder and said, it is finished. I stood up and he led me out of the room. There was no lock on the door. There were still cards to be written. And the truth is, church, there are still cards to be written. But praise his name that each and every one has been covered with his name under his blood, if you were saved, if you are a child of God. And hallelujah. And this is the hope that we find. Not not that we've done all those things, and I'm sure as I'm reading this story, memories are popping into our heads. Thoughts that we've had. Fits of rage and anger and lustful thoughts that No one has ever known but Jesus knows. And a lot of them pale in comparison to our gospel impact and our gospel influence. But I'm thankful that we have a shepherd who loves us so deeply, cares for us so much, that he's willing to write his name and to cover our account right there church that that should give you hope that should encourage you knowing that Jesus i mean that's what the gospel is i've given you many many examples of what the gospel is and many definitions but it's really his life for mine he took my place he's redeemed us he saved us not to go back to that old lifestyle but to live changed You see, I've been trying to to push us towards a gospel identity. And I know some people, it's going to take years, and some people might never get there. But that's the goal of myself going forward, to help us understand that we need to have an identity that is shaped in the gospel. And yeah, we're going to have moments where we mess up, and cards are going to be written that we wish would have never been written. But understand that Jesus cancels those out. And he wants us to serve him. He wants us to live for him. He wants us to love him. Think about what your savior, if you're, if you're a saved, if you're a Christian, think about what your savior has done for you. Now think in turn, in return. So what have you done for him? If he has canceled your debt, if he has canceled your payment, if he has written your, his name on your card, what have you done for him? For some of us, we've continued to add more cards to that pile. For some of us, we've realized that, okay, I have a job to do. I have a mission to do. I have a purpose. And the purpose is not for my life. It's for his life. Since he gave his life for mine, I want to give my life to him, to serve him, to glorify him, to advance his gospel. You see, that's that's what we see in Revelation. Revelation is not a terrifying book. It is if you're not saved. But if you're saved, Allow it to bring you hope. Allow it to bring you back to the gospel and realize that it's all about Jesus. It's all about his purpose, his plan going forward. And again, I close with that that final truth that I listed just a minute ago. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb who also will shepherd the nations and receive worship from all the people of the earth. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But Until that day, until he calls you home, you have a job to do. You have a mission. You've been commissioned. If you're not saved, I encourage you, right now, in your home, trust Christ as your Savior. You don't want to have to go through some of the things that are going to happen on this earth if you are still left behind. Admit you're a sinner. Believe on Jesus Christ confess your sin to him, and he will save you. It is simple. But so many people, they honor him with their lips, but they deny him. A lot of people have a head knowledge of Jesus, but they don't have a heart knowledge. They've never asked him to save him. You know, one of the books I'm reading, there's so many books right now, but one of the books I'm reading is, um, it's the unsaved Christian. It's what it's, it's what it's called. It's almost an oxymoron, but, you know, there are a lot of people that Call themselves Christian, but they're not saved. They've never asked Jesus to save them. They've never asked Jesus to come into their heart and forgive them of their sins, and it's evident by how they live their lives. So if that's you, I urge you right now, get it settled. And if you are saved, then man, live for God. The end is coming, but there is hope because, man, heaven is waiting, and heaven is so much, so much better, so much more glorious than all of this. Love you all. Thank you so much for being here. I'm going to pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord willing, we'll see you all on Sunday. Stay safe. Let's go ahead and pray.